Hi, this is Bob Groves, and welcome to our podcast series, Faculty and Research, once again. This week, we welcome Sheila Foster to the podcast, the Scott Ginsburg Professor of Urban Law and Policy. She holds a joint appointment with the Georgetown Law Center and the McCourt School of Public Policy. She's a relatively new colleague of ours. She joined Georgetown from Forden, where she was vice dean of law school, and then later university professor one of the highest honors a faculty member can be given at any university. And during this year, 21-22 academic year, she's serving as Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the Law Center here at Georgetown. She is a recognized authority on the role of cities and city leadership in promoting social and economic welfare, achieving environmental and climate justice, improving global governance and addressing racial inequity. From 2017 to 2020, she served as chair of the advisory committee for the Global Parliament of Mayors. And we'll talk a bit about that later. She's currently a member of the New York City Mayor's Panel on Climate Change. She also co-directs LabGov, an international applied research project that's pioneered an approach to economic development that enables local communities to become co-creators and stewards of urban revitalization in their neighborhoods. And this is going to be something focused on in her forthcoming book titled Co-Cities, colon, Innovative Transitions Toward Just and Self-Sustaining Communities. She has published in a wide variety of law journals and in books in a variety of university presses. So for all those reasons above, we are delighted to welcome you, Sheila, to this podcast. And maybe we ought to begin with, now that we've given the audience a sense of what you're focused on, how did those interests develop in your life? When did the spark of what led to a passion of yours. When did that happen and how did it happen? Well, thanks for inviting me to this podcast and into conversation. Always happy to talk about my passion and uh, how I got here because it wasn't a direct line. (laughs) I think where I began is not where I've ended up. And by that, I mean that at age seven, I wanted to be a lawyer. So it goes back to that. And I think my sense of wanting to be a lawyer was growing up with a mother who grew up in the South during segregation and seeing how much, you know, she talked about those times and how kind of transformative those times were for her own life, as well as obviously for African-Americans in this country. And also just watching Perry Mason, actually. And so I was really fascinated by um, this role of lawyer, even though I don't think I had a clear idea of what it meant. And so I went to law school after college. there I didn't veer. And, you know, coming out of law school, I ended up at a law firm, a corporate law firm. I didn't stay for too long. I got recruited into academia. And then when I went into the academy, I thought my interest would be, you know, civil rights, uh, for instance. I mean, the thing that sparked my passion in the first instance. And, And it was for a while. But as I began to talk to people and to teach and to write I discovered a field that I was completely unexpected in terms of my radar screen of interest. Uh, And that is uh, this field that we now know as environmental justice, but at the time wasn't really well known. And it involved an intersection between environmental policy and law and civil rights law. And I just for probably the first 
10 years of my career, that was my focus. Uh, I was really fascinated by, you know, studies that show that one of the harms that was, or the injustices that was happening in um, many poor communities and many Black and Latino communities, mostly urban, but not exclusively, was that they uh, bore their more than their fair share of bad things, pollution, highways, et cetera, and lacked all the good things that uh, we like in our communities, not just good schools, but also parks and clean air and clean water. And so that's where I started. And I did that for a long time. I worked with the Department of Justice, the EPA. I worked with states and cities. I was at that, I started my career teaching at Rutgers Camden. I, I did a lot of work in Camden before I came to Fordham. And from there, and I'll stop here, it emerged into looking at larger frameworks about how we govern cities and neighborhoods and the places where people live and what kind of communities they live in. And that just opened up a whole new range of questions for me. Um, And so today I would say that the thread that really pulls all my work together is what I call urban governance or this question of who decides, who gets to make the decision, and whether that's mayors at COP26 in Glasgow trying to intervene on what is a nation-state meeting around climate to make their voices heard, or whether it's in a city and trying to make the voices of various communities heard in terms of the decisions that are made that will impact their lives. So a lot of my work involves this question of who decides and how we create new structures of decision-making that move the ball along and that are more fair and just ultimately. I want to put a pin in that last part, but go way back. So you worked for a firm for a while. What made you conclude that that was not for you? And, and why did you think academia would be attractive? What about it attracted you? I don't think I had a really good idea going into law school what a lawyer actually did on a day-to-day basis. And the law firm really exposed that. And, you know, we watch these uh, television shows with lawyers in court and, you know, making amazing arguments and speaking in front of juries. And in fact, most lawyers don't do that. (laughs) In fact, most of the practice of law is sitting behind a desk and you know, going through papers uh, in discovery or taking depositions or working up a case or filing motions in court. And it's a very solitary, actually, uh, activity and also not a lot of idea exchange on a day-to-day basis. Um, And so I came to discover that maybe practicing law on a day-to-day basis in, in, in the private sector, no less, was not where my passion lied. I mean, I, or a lay rather, I graduated from law school at 24, so I went right through. And so I was really young. I don't think I have a really good sense of what I wanted to do with my education. And I certainly never thought about going into academia, even though my mother was a professor and a provost in Florida when I was growing up. It just never was on my radar until a professor at my law school at Berkeley called me up one day at the law firm and said, have you ever thought about teaching? You wrote this amazing research paper in my class. We have this opening, not on the tenure track, but a lectureship. You should think about coming back and doing this. And I just kind of took the jump and said, listen, I'll try this out if I like it. If I'm a natural, I'll stick. If not, I'll figure something else out. I was young enough. And it turned out that I really, the world of ideas was really enticing to me. Uh, yeah, fascinating. So you were recruited, it Indeed. sounds like, uh, from a former mentor. That That's great. So let's drill into environmental justice. And I could see how that was a, a step from a devotion to civil rights. But 
I'm interested in how you linked it to the local, to the community, as opposed to the nation state, and what you learned through those initial years that made you realize that's where you could have impact. My interest in the subject started out by reading a book, actually, that was one of a series of books that was coming out, let's say, in the mid to late 90s that from uh, sociologists and others that were starting to document the problem. And so I first approached it from a very intellectual standpoint. But the more that I began to write about it and to talk to the lawyers and the, and the academics that were in the uh, what they called the movement, the more I began to realize, and they articulated, that it was a from the ground up movement, that in fact, a lot of the norms being established about what environmental justice was and what the remedies could be and how to address it were coming from the voices of people that lived in the communities with all this bad stuff. And that had tried to show up at a meeting, let's say a local meeting, where the Department of Environmental Protection was considering the approval of a new facility or something else that affected the quality of their community. And so that was really where the rubber meet the road in terms of the world of ideas and what the problem was and how to address the problem. And so I started there. because, And so for a while, I went into these communities and eventually did so on an international basis in Latin America. But I went into these communities and began to get a deeper understanding. And, and in fact, my first book, which was published by NYU Press, was called From the Ground Up, Environmental Racism and the Rise of the Environmental Justice Movement. And it was designed to bring together the kind of on the ground things that were being articulated and the academic work and, and the legal theories that were starting to bubble up in court and eventually into an executive order signed by President Clinton in 1994. So that's where it became a really rich kind of not just theoretical and academic, but also my passion for working in communities and for changing the lives of people in those communities, uh, which I have to say went back to my childhood when I was growing up. We worked for my dad's grocery store in Miami, which was in a part of Miami called Overtown, where my mother was born, very poor community and where we went to church, even though we lived in a suburb. We spent a lot of time in this very poor black community at a time when, you know, there were lots of problems, including the crack epidemic. And so and I was always kind of connected to, you know, trying to solve or trying to address the challenges of the place where my parents grew up or where at least my mom was born. One of the things I realized working at that level is that the environmental issues that were manifesting in these communities were not so separate from the other issues that were manifesting. In other words, that environmental inequality or injustice was a manifestation of larger structural and decision-making process issues that also manifested in housing issues and employment issues. And so that it wasn't actually this separate phenomenon. That was my major insight after a decade working um, that in fact, it was connected to a lot of the ways that decisions are made, where money flows from, how local governments fund themselves. For right before I left Camden to go to Fordham, the city of Camden had been taken over by the state um, in a receivership. And I was involved in uh, working with the city of Camden and thinking about how to bring Camden back and replan so that that larger urban planning or restructuring issue about, you know, how, how do cities run? How do you fund cities? How do you get services to people? How do you make sure that public goods are really distributed in a fair way? Who makes those decisions? And what does that have to do with what's happening at the state and the federal level? 
because we know a lot of funds flow from the federal government on down. So today in my state and local government class, just to make that clear to students, even at the law school, as well as the policy school, we're completely focused on the federal government often, ignoring that a federalist society, actually the states have all this reserve power. There are 50 state constitutions and that so much of what happens, and we've seen this, of course, over the last five or six years, that a lot of what happens at the state level, not to mention at the local level, is immensely important, whether we talk about policing or schools or the environment or, you know, you name the, or elections. And so for me, the lens or the window that I got from doing this work in communities was really to start to interrogate the kind of larger infrastructure of decision-making around how it, you know, federalism all the way down is what we call it, (laughs) which is to say all the way from the highest levels of government, what President Biden is doing in an executive order through to the federal agencies where his policies are being put into place. And then money is flowing down to the states who get it right, which get the money, and then to the local governments and to the mayors, uh, and then finally down to the communities. And so that kind of, you know, urban law and policy, state and local government, you know, environmental, climate justice, if I'm teaching that, or even property law, frankly, that it all comes together into giving people an appreciation of the sausage making (laughs) that goes into the real material things that we end up with and that communities end up with. So it occurs to me that as you entered the field, you you must have found yourself interacting with environmental scientists of some sort, with certainly with politicians and and social scientists, and there's a bunch of uh, economics in this subfield too. So a lot of our colleagues are doing things like that. It'd be interesting in in how you navigate the multiple disciplines when you're working on a team and. What do you know now that you didn't know then on how to be an effective partner in a multidisciplinary team? That's such a great question. I always say that I'm often the only lawyer in the room. <laughs> um, it's certainly true, for instance, on this New York City panel on climate change, which is the expert body to the mayor of New York on questions of resiliency and climate adaptation and mitigation. Almost all client scientists and social scientists. Why am I there? <laughs> well, in part, because over time, I've learned that if you have a problem, and I always ask my students, like, what is the problem you're trying to solve? And then what is your toolbox or what's your tool kit that you need? And that's different for policy students than it is for law students. But sometimes you need all those tools, right? And so I have these conversations with, in particular, policy students, but also you know, law students who ask, should I go to law school? Should I go to policy school? And it's all about what do you think you're going to be doing and what do you need to do that? So for me, I learned to pick up a, a few more tools along the way by you know, reading and sitting in rooms and sometimes educating myself by taking a seminar on uh, social science methodology, et cetera, so that I can talk to people across disciplines when we're all trying to address the same problem, like climate, for instance or climate change, or climate justice, or climate equity, however you frame it, in addition to the issue of how do you rebuild communities, which have a slew of issues that need to be attended to, even if you're engaged in one kind of plan that you're trying to come up with for that community or work with them on. So I think that being conversant, if not fluent, across you know disciplines is so important. And I think universities, it's why I came to Georgetown, actually, because of what you're doing in the joint appointments and the kind of interdisciplinary approach is I think that, you know, universities are moving and have to move in this direction. So I know 
the fact that you have an appointment both at the law school and the policy school is important for you, but give us a little insight into why it's enriching for you to teach different kinds of students. What do you get out of it? If one thinks of this job as a continuous learning process, I'm always learning from these students. Um, So in the policy school, for instance, McCord is very quantitatively focused. And so when I get students in my class, which is an elective, they're very interested in how to use data and what data can tell us about, not just what the problem is, but whether the solutions we have are working. And that's just not the way I was trained as a lawyer. And it's not the way that we teach, although that's starting to change a little bit in law schools. So immensely important. I'm always learning from that. And so when students do projects in my class, they're always bringing data. And now I can, I'm conversant enough to help them some, although I'm not an expert in that. So that's one example of what I learned from teaching policy students at McCourt. I'm understanding that, you know, different policy schools have uh, different focuses. And at the law school, you know, students are very more interested in normative thinking and adversarial (laughs) thinking. Uh, And there is where you sharpen your argument and you sharpen your analytical skills of just parsing arguments and parsing what people say and parsing what the law is. And the law is a science in, you know, in and of itself, but also one that one needs to approach critically. So I think what I get from a teaching at the law school is a lot of critical thinking, a lot of critical analysis. You know, teaching in both is a dream <laughs> because to constantly be going in between those worlds really feeds into the work that I do in the real world <laughs> when I'm crafting policy or working with either mayors or with a federal agency to really bring an appreciation for both of those skill sets, I think is really enriching. I want to ask you about the global parliament of mayors. Tell us, first of all, for the audience, what is it and how did this amazing thing happen and why? Right. So one of the things that I got to do before I left Fordham is uh, when I was appointed university professor, I started what's called an urban consortium across campus. We had an urban studies program and an urban law center at the law school, but those things were not connected. And I connected them. And as I was doing that, someone introduced me to a fellow by the name of Dr. Benjamin Barber, who was a pretty famous at the time political scientist who had, or political philosopher who had written a book called If Mayors Ruled the World. And in that book, the last chapter of that book, he proposed this idea of a global parliament of mayors. And his whole argument in was that we built these institutions of governance at the international level after World War II that were increasingly dysfunctional. Think about the United Nations, for instance. And that that dysfunction was doing a disservice to the majority of the world's populations who live in cities. We're now an urbanized world. And that most of the current problems of the day really were at the doorstep of cities and mayors were having to deal with this. And so Mayors really should be deeply involved in problem solving around those problems, whether it was immigration or climate or urban inequality or urban violence. So his idea was to create an analog to the UN, but for mayors, the global problem mayors. I invited him to come to Fordham to become a fellow at my urban consortium, which he did. And we launched the global parliament of mayors from there together in 2016 in The Hague. The Hague hosted it. We had mayors from all over the world. (laughs) And unfortunately, few months after that meeting, he fell ill with cancer and he passed away. And after he did, the group, we had a, an election for the chair of that 
organization, the advisory committee, which was the expert body, there is a executive committee of mayors that runs it. And I was elected as chair. And then I asked a colleague to be a co-chair. And so I, I basically was involved in crafting the focus of that uh, organization for three years. One of the things we did, and I brought in my Georgetown colleagues, um, in particular from the Georgetown Public Health Group, Rebecca Katz being one of them. And, you know, in 2018, we got the mayors to start focusing on urban pandemic preparation because Dr. Rebecca Katz said, you know, this is going to happen soon and no one's paying attention to it. And, you know, what if I came to your body of mayors and put this on their agenda? And that's exactly what she did. (laughs) She came to, I think the meeting that year was in Bristol, UK, was hosting the convening of the GPM. And we put that on the agenda of the mayors in the Global South and Global North. And they began to think about what cities can do to prepare for urban pandemics. And this was, as you know, a year and a half before we actually experienced a pandemic. So, and it just goes to show you the kind of agency and actions that global mayors can take. uh, And they are on climate change and all of these other areas in which there's uh, dysfunction at the international level when uh, nation states you know, cannot come together to solve them. It, it turns out that mayors acting collectively, and there are many of these networks now, uh, can do a lot. And so it's been really exciting to be a part of that. It must be all sorts of fun too. Do you sense when you watch them interact that despite living in different governmental structures across the world uh, on a nation state level, they're sort of their own club, they understand each other and, and they have shared problems and shared problems and shared constraints, actually. I mean, I think uh-huh. in no part of the world can mayors rule the world, <laughs> at least formally. But what they do bond around are that they do certainly, most certainly have shared problems, though they may manifest in different ways and they have different resources depending on where they are in the world and also where they are, even in their country uh, country. But one of the things that we focused on is the notion that they have what's called soft power, right? They may not have the legal authority. They may not be well situated to put in place policies, but when they come together because of the amount of economic productivity that cities are generating across the world, that if you get the mayor of Paris and the mayor of London, the mayor of New York, and a few other mayors together, and they go to the UN or they want to do something, it turns out that moves that moves the needle. And so they've learned to exercise their soft power by advocating, by coming up with resolutions, by binding themselves to those resolutions, for instance, on climate reductions, for instance. And they've gotten funding from the private sector. For instance, if you look at C40, which is the largest group of cities working on climate, funded in large part by Bloomberg and others, they have spent billions of dollars over the past decade achieving remarkable climate reductions and really moving the needle on climate change, even in the absence of an international agreement. So migration as well, if you think about migration across borders um, and other areas, it's striking what they can do together. Let me switch gears. The listeners by now know that you are juggling a million balls at once. And some of our younger colleagues entering this life we live are overwhelmed with the complexity of juggling those balls. So give us an insight about sort of time management and what you've learned over the years to focus on the important things, but still keep a lot of things going at once. Yeah, it's a struggle. (laughs) Uh, But one that I think with some 
tweaks, I think, to one's daily schedule is manageable. I have to say I have a family, I have a, a kid. It's at times it's been really challenging to balance home and work and also all of this other expert work that I do. So one thing early on I learned was to separate out my teaching preparation and my scholarly work. So, which is to say that I always use my office to prepare for class and I would keep all my teaching materials there. And when I went home, it was just scholarship. So whatever time I was able to carve out at home, whether it was late at night when my kid was sleeping or on the weekends or, you know, over the summers, then I could focus on, I had no other excuse because my teaching, <laughs> you know, none of my teaching materials, you know, with some exceptions, if I was teaching a new course that tended to eat up all of my time and I would just set aside my research for a few months. But on an ongoing basis, I try to segment my life and my time and set small goals such as I'm going to do, you know, I'm just going to prepare for teaching at work and research at home and not beat myself up if I mix those two sometimes or if I'm not as productive. And then after a while, when I began to take on administrative responsibilities, you know, I think the balance was even more intense. You know, if you're an administrator, as you know, you can negotiate away some teaching. So I did that, of course, I took advantage of that. I have to say that I decided to continue to write even as I was administering because I, it was important for me to, or stay involved in the, whatever academic or scholarly conversations that I was a part of. And that paid off. So even if I didn't teach as much, I uh, made sure that I continued to publish. And for me, good teaching is a result of being a good scholar. There's a, for me, a, a direct correlation with how much I'm reading and keeping up literature and what I'm able to impart to students beyond what they're reading in the book I've assigned or in the books I've assigned. So for me, again, it's a continuous process of learning and keeping up. There's new things all the time. And, you know, I have a stack of books now that I haven't read that I'm supposed to read just because I'm curious, but it's also what's exciting about our work. So maybe one final question. So what are you working on now that you find yourself thinking about at odd moments that, you know, it's captured you. And if you didn't have any constraints at all, that's about all you'd be doing. What are you excited about these days? I have to say there's not one thing, but one project I'm working on now with McCourt students in the Massive Data Institute and a law student is a data project on zoning changes in the district and how they correlate with demographic changes over three mayoral administrations. And the reason that's so fascinating to me is because I'm trying to intervene in an argument that I think everyone will understand today that housing is just too expensive in cities. And one theory for why that is, is that we don't build enough. And we don't build enough is because our land use and zoning laws are too restrictive. So it's called the supply argument. So what we have to do is increase supply by getting rid of or loosening up these rules. And so that's all over the papers these days, et cetera. And one of the things that keeps me up at night is whether it's that easy, because we see a city like Washington is building a lot of housing. All you have to do is look around, but yet prices are still high and lots of people are being displaced. So what I'm trying to show is not just how much you build, but what kind of housing you build, what kind of supply. So that's what I'm working on now. It's a big project. It's been going on for about a year or so. We've got zoning data. We've got census data. There's the kind of the ongoing law and policy debate about um, housing supply. And it has real implications for how we build or rebuild our cities, especially uh, the most productive cities like Washington and New York and LA and San Francisco and like. 
we wish you well on that one. Thank you. Sheila Foster, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us, giving us a little insight into what makes you tick and what your passions are. We appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.